the Mojo Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mail, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey and the esteemed composer, producer, and all-round polymath, the incomparable Jim O'Rourke. Hello, gang. Hello. Oh, my. That's a very nice thing. That's much, much more than you should have said. Thank you very much. Well, I, I, oh, dear, because I'm about to say more, Jim, Uh-oh. just for uh, people who might kind of need a little bit of background. I was going to say, most people. Si- si- since the early 90s, Jim O'Rourke has dazzled in innumerable fields, performing with and producing the likes of Derek Bailey, Sonic Youth, Wilco, Gastro Del Sol, and Stereo Lab and releasing an astonishing run of solo recordings encompassing everything from music concrete and post-rock to tape collages, improv, soundtracks, and music that exists beyond the petty confines of genre. Since 2010, I think it's 2010, he has lived in Japan with the composer and songwriter Eiko Ishibashi, and in that time they have both released solo and collaborative works of a rare and strange beauty. Jim's latest major label release is the score for Kyle Armstrong's uncanny western, Hands That Bind, which has just been released on Drag City. Before we speak to Jim, here is an extract from the Hands That Bind score. This is the eerily wonderful A Man's Mind Will Play Tricks On Him, written by Jim O'Rourke and released on Drag City. Jim, the Drag City press release for this soundtrack describes it as a musical assembly of found and processed sounds enmeshed together into a music that supersedes their resident part. Could you perhaps explain? <laughs> could you perhaps explain what that means, or maybe just kind of uh, <laughs> tell me exactly how that relates to how you worked on the soundtrack? Um, well, I. <laughs> Well, that's that's good old Ryan at Drag City flexing his his uh, thesaurus. Uh, well, I mean, the 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 sound the music was the film was actually made three years ago, um, maybe yeah. more by this point. So the music's actually a couple of years old by now, and it was really I usually don't um, want to put out soundtracks for for films I worked on because um, you know. There, the music you make for films mostly is like like a handful of one minute bits and pieces. You know, I mean, mm. when you when you take yeah. them out of the film and and th- look at them as just music. So, uh, but the director Kyle Armstrong, he really wanted to there to be a soundtrack. So, uh, I kind of restarted and and made an album. As, as opposed to just collecting tracks from the from the soundtrack, so there's actually there's a fair amount of music in on the album that was made for the film but didn't end up in it, 
And I didn't, I didn't quite yeah. realize that myself because once I got in my head about just like, I've got to make this a record that works as a record. I didn't really check to see if the stuff ended up in the film or not. <laughs> and I think the track you just played is actually not in the film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cause I'm always, I'm always fascinated by composers relationships with film scores as they all seem to work differently. Mm. And I was just wondering what stage were you brought in to work on the score? Cause like sometimes it's like, you know, the composer will send bits and pieces to the filmmaker and say, Oh, you know, try some of these, see if these kind of fit the bill or they'll actually, you know, compose or along, you know, alongside watching the film. I mean, how did you work in relation to this? Well, in, I mean, I have worked, I've worked with Kyle before. I've done music for a couple of his films. So he sort of knew how I work, which is basically give me the film and go, <laughs> go away. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, not that, I mean, it's not that I, uh, you know, it's very similar to like, you know, when I, when, and a lot of things that, that I've done when I was producing people's records, like there's a thing that I do. And if that's what you want, best thing is, is just to hand it over <laughs> and come back later. But, uh, but he, he knew, I mean, it's not like I'm being asked to do film scores all the time. Uh, so, I mean, he knew asking me, he kind of knew what he wanted and he had suggestions, of course. And we, it's not like I just, you know, handed things back to him and said, there, that's it. But for the bulk of it, yeah, I just, I, he would, you know, directors usually, sometimes directors really get kind of married to a temp score they, they put in, you know, they put in clips and, and mm. uh, that can be a problem sometimes. I'm not saying it was this time, but that, that's one sort of kind of hurdle you got to kind of jump over. And usually they have an idea of where they want music to come in and out, which is handy, of course. But yeah. also, you know, sometimes I think, no, you don't need it there or you blah, blah, blah. And you make suggestions. And that's mostly the kind of the whatever kind of like uh, conversation going back and forth was mostly about things like that. Because uh, I think if if I had if if I had gotten something else as a little, if I hadn't gotten a guitar as a little kid, I probably would have become a film editor. Uh, uh, so yeah. um, I, I look at it a lot like that. So that you're quite, you're kind of piecing it together in the way that you might, you're piecing the soundtrack together in the way that you might piece it, piece a film. Yeah. Together. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah. I mean, film editing was a big influence on me when I was young. Yeah. So, just I'm not just in terms of how I watch films, but how I think about everything. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is obviously when you, you know, when you watch the completed film, so much of your, your mood cues are coming from the soundtrack, but obviously when you're watching it, that, that's not there. So where, where do you take your mood cues from? You know, you think, Oh, this is okay. This is quite, this is needs to sound quite unsettling. This is kind of quite sort of lush and pastoral. You know, where are mm. you taking your little cues from? It sounds like a na naive no, question, no. but it's always one I, of the I probably of... don't think of it that way much. I mean, directors usually do, you know. I mean, because, yeah. uh, I mean, there's also, there's also this line, and it's especially true now. It's not now, but like in the last 10 years or so. There's, of course, that line between music and sound design. And there used to be a much, yes. obviously in older films, there's a much different, you know, there's two different things. But there's been a con continuously more and more a crossover. 
to the point now where, uh, uh, <laughs> no, I won't say that. Um, where it it's it is almost becoming just sound design, and when it becomes just sound design, there has to be some sort of element in it. And you could call it music, or you could, could you you could call it whatever, but something that can be referred to later or extrapolate on in order to to uh, to do a lot of things that music can do that sound design can't, which means like to develop an idea, you know if. If you could think of it like in the old school sense, you know, like a theme, a theme gets changed over the course yeah. of the film, over the course of development yeah. of a character or a situation. And um, you can't technically you can, but it you really can't develop sound design. You know what I mean? I mean, you can, yeah. but you know what I mean? So that balance is really important for me. Uh, and I find more and more directors are asking for things that are really more like almost 95% sound design. They want mood, but I kind of mm. make the argument for that. You have, there has to be some, some, some sort of articulated thing within it that, that can yeah. be recycled and re reused and re re uh, returned to and referenced to. So yeah. I probably, I probably think about that more than about like what the mood should be. Uh, unless yes. unless yeah. you're doing it something purposely uh, uh, to, you know, um, I, that was the, that score that uh, Daniel LaPoten did for uh, um, Uncut Gems, for example. I mean, that's something where he's purposely, yeah. it's like, just seems wrong, but it's on purpose, you know. Yeah. So then you can address things that way. But uh, in general, I'm probably talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at not all. At all. Not. The, the, the thing I was going to ask is, do you think that this kind of um, uh, leaning towards sound design as, as the obligation of the composer, do you think that's anything to do with the fact that so many films now use license existing tracks? So what used to be the composer's mm -hmm. job has now effectively been uh, the kind of freelan drop. freelanced out to, um, to those kind of uh, agents who collect you know 90s hits or whatever to to populate yeah schools i mean with. i i don't know about that but i i believe you but i i mean i'm not involved in that world really but the other thing is you've yeah. got these basically what are soundtrack making factories basically you know i mean and they can yeah. be just like one person or two people and they've got basically templates i mean i was laughing earlier because mm. you know uh like if you even just like like on the BBC and ITV and all like if you looked if you looked at every sort of like countryside crime related show of the ten thousand had been made yeah I mean there's like one or two templates for the music for all of those and you can tell and this is gonna sound like I'm I'm criticizing but I don't mean it that way but you know you can hear it's like it's there's always a you know it's oh and it's always because these guys they've got to get this stuff done and out quickly. That's yeah. the thing, yeah. you know, when you're involved in the professional world of, of, of filmmaking and, and uh, films soundtrack making, you're on under a lot of pressure, you know, and, you know, they need it yesterday. So you've got, you've got, you know, twangy guitar and, and ethereal uh, uh, ambient beds <laughs> running through every crime that's swept through England in the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's like living. <laughs> <laughs>
But I, I, I mean, the, the other I mean, hand, what John was saying, I'm, I'm sure is also very true. But I, I do know that there's these sort, the this sort of like professional soundtrack music world, which I obviously have nothing yeah. to do with. But um, it's, yeah. it's. I mean, it was the same back in the day. If you know, you'd have the composers in you know who work for the studios. You know, they had to churn out those scores and get them recorded. It's just, uh, it's just yeah. taking a different shape now. I'm Jim O'Rourke, Jim O'Rourke, Jim O'Rourke, and you're listening, listening, you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. The album you've brought into discuss today is Word of mm. Mouth. It's the second solo LP by the brilliant, troubled. Jaco Pastorius. It was released on the Warner Brothers label in 1981 and it features a ridiculously strong lineup that includes Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, Michael Brecker, Hubert Laws, oh, Hubert Jack DeJohnette, and yeah, and of course Toot yeah. Steelman's on uh, harmonica. And maybe to give an idea of the album's, I suppose the phrase would be radical eclecticism. <laughs> We should play a little bit of the opening track, which is the kind of um, manic, almost atonal wildness uh, track called Panic. And then a little bit from the yeah. one after, which is one of the record's more obviously beautiful tracks, Three Views of a Secret, both written by Jaco Pastorius and released on the Warner Brothers label. <laughs> I mean, that is quite the contrast, yeah, yeah. isn't it, Jim? I mean, when 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 would you have first heard I, this record? I, I, I it bought it when it came of... out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was already and, a Jocko freak by that point. And so your ears would have been, you know, they would have been hit with the, the you know, the, the double whammy of those opening two tracks. And can you remember the impact of that I do because I remember being really disappointed in the first track and to and actually until now that's what, when you when you said earlier you're going to play a little bit I was sort of making a gesture with my fingers yeah just a little <laughs> bit cuz like like ironically conceptually I totally understand I totally understand it and I sh that should make me happy but that first track is just a hair too long I think uh, yeah it it's it, it should have done what it needed to do. And then, you know, three views of a secret comes in and like, yeah, which makes that even more so, you know, amazing. But, uh, I do remember, uh, I had already heard at that point, I'd already heard, you know, I was already like listening to Derek Bailey and stuff like that. So 
at that age, when I was, yeah. you, know, you know, I was like 13 or 14 when that record came out. And at that age, I was still thinking probably like a musician, you know, I was thinking about playing the guitar and I want, I was playing bass. I had a fretless bass mm-hmm. in high school, you know? So at that time, thinking that way, it kind of, it was both, it was both not good enough in a way. Cause it wasn't, it, 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 you know, if you're listening to Bratzman or Derek Baylor stuff, that sounds like free jazz yeah. light, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I was sort of disappointed and, and I have to, uh, I use, whenever I listen to this record, I have to say, I usually skip the first track. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I understand it. It's great. And, and I love it conceptually cause it probably pissed off people at the record label and, and listen, oh, listeners, hugely, like yeah. me, you know, yeah. but you know, that's the kind of guy he was. So conceptually, I love it. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but for me, the album starts at three views of a secret with, with a nod to the yeah. concept. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. Because that, that track panic was a site of conflict with him and the label. The label was saying, there's no way you can make make that the opening track. And that was kind of like the sticking point for Pastorius. Mm. He just kind of accepted this huge record deal. They thought he was going to be the, which is a phrase you can only really have said in 1981. <laughs> they thought he was going to be the future of fusion, <laughs> you know, and that, he, you know, and that he was going to bring in, bring in the dollars for them. And then they heard this, you know, literally it would have been you know what the fuck is this shit you know when they heard that opening track and yet of course because they knew what beauty is contained within this album behind that opening track and they thought this is going to kill it on radio because you know radio pluggers are gonna and and djs are going to hear that and they're not going to go any further than that track yeah it's uh but you know i mean he I, like I said, I mean, I, 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 I get it, uh, but it, yeah. strangely enough, it isn't, it isn't wild enough for me. It's like, if you're going to do that, so do what? it. <laughs> yeah. Which, which begs the question, therefore, kind of which were the points on the album that you lost yourself in? Which were the, which were the tracks that you would, well, you know, kind of stick the needle down? Well, of, I mean... Basically anything after the first track, you know, it's basically, yeah. but I mean, for me as a kid, when I first heard the, album, the thing that has had the longest, probably the biggest impact on me was I had never, it was, it was one of the major records in my life that taught me how to listen to music outside of, you know, what supposed walls is. I mean, I had never heard, big band arranging like that before, you know, I was like in big band in high yeah. school. And so everything I'm saying is kind of couched in the fact that I heard this very young and, and the arrangements are unlike anything I had heard at the time, not just in, in what kind of arrangements it was. It was just, he's touching on so many things on so many different musics without making without foregrounding that on the album none it's not i mean it's it's the least fusion fusion album there is because everything's done with a very light touch that comes out of his his actual life experience 
There's such a nuance yes. in everything. It's not, it's not now we're going to mix this and this. It's these things have cohabitated inside me. And yeah. now the thing that comes out of me is, is you know, the, the melange <laughs> or whatever, you know? Well, I'm sorry. It's, 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 yeah, no, it, I guess that the thing I was going to, I mean, I've never heard this record before and I, I have to confess, I didn't know that this side of Pastorius actually existed, but the point that I think is interesting is to me, panic is what I would have expected right. a Pastorius yeah. fusion. That seems closer to me to an idea of fusion, however problematic it might be than a lot of the rest of the record, because it is this surreal big band record in a way. Yeah. And it's, but it's also just not, I mean, the songwriting, he was, I mean, he was, he was already on the, le on the level of like Wayne Shorter, like melodically and harmonically. And, and like the, you you were mentioning, you would expect Panic to be the first track, but in a way he really does that track correctly when he does bl a Blackbird. Because yes. that's like, that's astounding. Like the dynamics of that thing are just, it's not just, oh, he's got the distortion on, he's doing that. The change, the dynamic and tonal shifts, like in, what is it, like three minutes? It's insane. Yeah. But, but is it like, so is he basically bringing in toots to sort of, to play the melody, to kind of, hook, you know, to kind of ground you with kind of like the, the sweeter part. And so you can kind of recognize that it's, you know that it is kind of McCartney's Blackbird, and then kind of which leaves him free to hmm. do other stuff, as it were. I mean, kind of how's he how's he using toots in that track? I mean, in a way, you know, something like Blackbird is like the kind of tune, kind of thing he would do when he'd do a bass solo. You know, like especially like you know when yeah. he was playing in Joni Mitchell's band, like on on that. Yeah, and that the the record version of him doing Blackbird, it's almost like with the arrangement, not just the instrumental arrangement, but also the mix arrangement, like what's happening when he's also using the mm. studio with as much, yeah. with as much mastery as he is, was writing what he's writing on paper and handing over to the musicians. I mean, that track alone. And again, it, it's, it's like, it's like you're seeing the fireworks inside his head when he does those solos live yeah. and he's managed to record something that yeah. is probably what he sees you know because he was one of those guys who you know gets lost in some ether when he does that stuff i was reading the bill um Mikowski biography and um one of the interesting things about it is that that it says that basically jacko was really heavily into jamaican dub at the time hmm. and was kind of using the controls in the manner of what he how he thought they were using it in sort of dub studios he, he was while musicians were playing, he was sliding in overdubs for them right. to respond to. And wow. also, and then in the, in the documentary, the 2015 documentary, he's, he's quoted as saying, we're not going to let anyone hear anyone else's parts. Whatever happens, we'll see if it fits. Right. So from that, I, can, I, 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 I deduce that he's basically, he's got people playing in the studio, not being able to hear the track, but occasionally he will kind of feed in little bits, little almost kind of samples yeah. of what's on the track so they can hear it in their headphones and, and respond to it. Yeah, you, just, you can really hear that I'm, at the I'm end. Right, the, that's nuts, isn't it? Yeah, you can really hear that on the end of John and Mary with when the, that last section right before the hand claps come in. You can really, it really, that yes. really has that vibe. 
It's it's which I mean, before I didn't know that before, but I, I, I that section always sort of reminded me of like uh, Miles's um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, it's on Get Up with It, um, rated rated X, uh, which is kind yes. of which is kind of like the original This Heat twenty four track loop. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that section you can read what you can really hear what you're saying, and it's really it's it's kind of amazing there's something yeah and then those hand claps come in we should um probably play a little bit of um john and mary just so people can hear what you're talking about Mm. this is um this is john and mary from word of mouth written by jaco pastorius released on warner brothers records in 1981 and this is the little bit where the uh, in the record towards the end where the hand claps come in that, that Jim was talking about. <laughs> Give it a listen. I mean, there's a cruelty as well to how this kind of album is received, both by Warner Brothers, but also by this kind of father figure that he had in Weather Report, oh, yeah, Joe, yeah. Joe Zawinul. Yeah, I've heard about that. And, I, I, and yeah, and basically, I think it's kind of the, the track Liberty City, which I think was one of the ones that he's most mm. proud of on the album. And he plays it to Zawinul. He waits until he's back on tour with Weather Report and he play, take, plays it to Zawinul. And Zawinol describes it as typical high school big band bullshit. <laughs> you know, and just, and someone describes Zawinol as like kind of being like a boxer who knows the right place to mm. hit, you know, to just destroy someone. And he didn't, yeah, and he it, didn't you know, seem it, to be a very nice guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's interesting that tension between the improvisation and the way that he recorded it and the way that a lot of that music actually sounds quite compositionally oh. rigorous when you hear it in the in the aftermath. I don't know how much of that he applied when he was piecing it all together afterwards or whether or whether there was some kind of un, underlined scoring that people that he was following even if the musicians weren't. I, I would I would hope there was. I would think there was because there's there's such like structural um integrity to the whole thing despite what i was saying about Mm. the first track and if you took liberty city out of that record and just played it i mean i'm not saying mr zalano was correct but that is something someone could say but within the context of the record it's 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 something else it's like it's this moment of gravity on the record where we we take a break from you know like where we've been you know we've been pulled off to the to the other net you know other universes or whatever, and we we're pulled back for a while, and things are going to be calm for a little bit. Um, so, in the context of the record, it works perfectly. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something. One of the things I was trying to get my head around 
yesterday when I was listening to the record is that I couldn't, it reminded me of Hot Rats a bit, oh. but I couldn't quite work out why. And maybe it's something like that. Maybe Zawinul's point about this record it could be equally applied to right. Hot Rats in a way. Huh, Hot Rats. I haven't listened to that in a long time. I never clicked with that record. So it's it's interesting you say that because there is something about, there is something sort of uh, touristic about that record to me. Totally, um, totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you just listen to Liberty, it's Liberty City, right? Uh, yeah. I could see how someone would think that. It, it if, It's a very consciously, it's a conscious way to me of, screwing with the big band tradition or trying to trying to apply new elements and mm. subversive elements successfully or unsuccessfully and i'm you know on the fence about zapper and hot rats yeah. as, as well but but it does seem like i mean one thing we i, I don't think we've touched on is exact is the element the musical elements that he puts into a big band context like steel pants you know or mm. or the whole the whole toot steelman's lead yeah, lines yeah, yeah. yes which, 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 quite hard to think of analogies yeah, for me. At which least. are beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the weird, the weird thing is reading about it is there is, you know, and it is kind of like it, it does. It's exactly what you're saying, Jim. It does seem to reading about the album does you do seem to be at odds with how it sounds because you know it sounds like it was this kind of impulsive, improvisatory album where he's making these often indulgent and manic kind of choices. I mean, kind of he, you know, he was bipolar and his bipolar condition gets a lot worse after he made this album because, but just going back to like John and Mary, I mean, they brought in a 31 piece string section from the Los Angeles mm. Philharmonic. Um, and then he basically ended up erasing all the tracks because he didn't feel that they had enough soul and commitment, <laughs> which is what you, what, which is what you're right. looking for when you bring in the <laughs> right. Philharmonic. Um, and, and then he basically gets in seven of the best players from the session and has them and you use overdubs yeah. to create a 63 piece yeah. section. And he brought, he brought in Michael Gibbs. Yeah. He brought in Michael Gibbs to conduct and then locked him out of the studio. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, so like you're reading these stories, which, which kind of gives you one impression of what this album is going to sound like. And yet you, you think, well, well, no, because there is a compositional genius and there is a kind of genius for overdubbing. Yeah, I mean, reasons. that's the thing. I think there's a genius for overdubbing there that is yeah. incredible that's going on in that I album. Mean, of course, it's also, a, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about now about like how it influenced me. It's also a budget thing, of course, but that's always how I do strings. Sometimes only one person, if possible. It's, yeah. it, it does sound different. It's there's find the one person that has soul and commitment. The person who gets it, you know. Sometimes it yeah. takes years to find people, but when you find them, yeah. you've got to you've got to stick to them like glue, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of I suppose it's also related to that kind of idea of like a person working within the industry mm. who didn't fit yeah. within the industry, which must be something that you identify with and and, and recognize as well. Mm. This I this decision to be part of that world. Yeah. Or and not part of that world. And you, you get the impression that Jacko th that world was not kind to him, but it was the only world he could kind of, you know, get that kind of yeah, work. And in. also the options know. then were not what someone like him would have had now. Yeah. Um Yes. Yeah, I mean I I I have a friend who 
whose wife, a friend who works more in the professional world of music, and his wife had this wonderful phrase for what it's like to, to be in that world, and she called it the golden handcuffs. <laughs> and yeah. it's I've never heard a better phrase to express what that weird balancing point for someone who is doing it for a personal reason, but working within a a world that has nothing to do with that, you know. Do do you ever regret not pursuing that world a little bit no. more yourself? I mean, no. I guess you you dipped your toe in it in the late nineties to a degree in terms of larger scale arrangements. Yeah. No, I and I remember I kind of remember the moment where I decided that it was over. I was recording, I was mixing in the middle of mixing someone's and I usually wouldn't allow anyone from the label to come into the studio. I like usually it's like only necessary people, even band members would have to leave, you know. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't being rude about it. Anyone everyone knew. But this guy from the label came and he asked me when I was going to give them the MP3 mixes. And I just like, oh, this is this is it for me. <laughs> I mean, this is a long time ago. This I was I was still living in New York then. Uh, uh, right. But I, yeah, I just it was yeah. I I think there was a part a window where what I did made sense for a handful of people, and then that window closed. You know, and then that was it. Yeah, I don't I don't think. Uh, I don't think I would have been useful to anybody else past then, you know? Yeah. So listening to this album and you briefly mentioned kind of it's, it's the ways in which it's influenced you, um, which would be kind of nice to kind of go over, but also I'm thinking kind of way other way, because of what you were talking about, kind of the way, you know, the professional industry in, industrial world of music treats people. Does it kind of connect with you on that level as well? You know, the kind of the it's it's an album both made within but at odds to that professional world. I mean, I can see that, but I don't personally I, I never looked at it that way because kind of like what I was saying before, is like at when that album was made, that was that was the only way you could do it. So yes, so yeah. it it isn't necessarily a choice on that level. It's it's yeah, um, true. I mean, I think I think for me, the thing that really overall the biggest influence was um, and I'm sure you guys thought I was going to pick uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. <laughs> but this, this is <laughs> I have to say, Jim, I thought you'd choose either something Japanese and, and really noisy or something like Dean Friedman or something <laughs> like that. Some kind of 70s. Uh, oh, Andy, uh, Andy Pratt. Yeah. Um, Andy yeah. Pratt. Um, <laughs> no, but but as you as you know, and maybe some listeners know, like I was when I was younger, I was really into like Genesis so I was listening to albums that were made as albums, you know, I mean, in the extreme yeah. sense, like, you you know, like something like Land Lies Down Broadway. But when I heard word of mouth, it had never occurred to me that you can do that with all music, that you can make it. Because yeah. I didn't, I'd never heard a jazz at a record that was an album. You know what I mean? Mm. Where that sort of separate, mm. that critical distance and thinking of the whole thing as a work. I'd never heard anything in other kinds of music that approached music, uh, like creating an album that way. You know, I'm, I'm talking about when I was a kid, of course there was, but I just didn't know it yet. Uh, so uh, 
and just structurally that album really i mean it's funny when i when i i was putting together a radio i do a radio show in japan and and a few weeks ago like right around the time you guys wrote to me asked me to do this i i actually played john and mary on on the show and and i was like it was those times i can hear that and I'm like man did i rip off everything from this <laughs> you know <laughs> like it's i know it's maybe hard to explain and i haven't really thought it through but i can tell how much uh this album was like part of my daa when i like i i, I made bad timing i mean just structurally and and the pacing and everything and especially this is a horrible word to use but the like the denouement <laughs> you know the way that it ends <laughs> is so the end of john and mary and i and yeah. I've, cons I, I mean, it's funny because it's, you know, like the ending of Bad Timing and the ending of Simple Songs and all, they all have something to do with each other. I think Simple Songs and Bad Timing end exactly the same way. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I think, well, you know, that's your big conceptual picture. Or, no, you just listened to John and Mary a lot when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one it is, you know. <laughs> Maybe the visitor. Too. Oh yeah, yeah, the visitor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because the. I'm going to go away and just listen to the um, denouement back to back <laughs> of all those records and just and have that kind of uh, light bulb moment and go, oh my god, he's absolutely right. It's that film editing yeah, yeah, yeah. again, though. Maybe the way that it influences your yeah. music. Never mind the way that you're writing yeah. scores. I think those records also echo the um, the Jacko record in in the tension between composition and improvisation mm. there as well, and that was something that you seem to focus on a lot through that period, or it certainly did to to an outside huh. listener. Interesting. I mean, there. I mean, I mean, in the technical sense, there's, there's nothing improvised. I mean, if you ask poor Glenn Cochie, <laughs> you know, I mean, pretty much everything is written. Well, it depends on the musician. Like with Glenn, I would just write the score. You know, like for Darren, it was easier to explain or whatever. Uh, but yeah, pretty they pretty much didn't have much room to wiggle. But well, maybe maybe it's not that. Maybe it's more an improviser. Hmm turning to mm. composition or someone who was best known mm. as an improviser. Well, I guess, they, I mean, they just sort of coexisted in me since, I mean, I mean, when I was younger in terms of records coming out, uh, well, it's kind of like uh, similar to what I was saying before. I mean, it was easy for me to go and improvise and then, you, you know, you record the show or whatever when I could make my tape things at home with my with my but in order to to make things like uh you know like the drag city records at that time er, er, earlier in my life that would require going to a studio which i did not have the money for and even the first the first few drag city records i mean i made those uh, like my roommate at the time worked at like a kind of small recording studio, like where local people would want to record, not like a pro studio, you know, kind of like a small local studio. There used to be a lot of those, you know, until like the nineties. And if like a session canceled or there was nobody at night, he would, he would let me go in the studio and 
like insignificance was all recorded like like over two nights where someone had canceled a session you know so i could use the studio for free so making that kind of music does uh just by its very nature if if you don't have the opportunity or the economic means you can't make those things so probably for that reason that side of uh, that side of me or whatever i probably didn't do very much of it until um until i built a uh, like a small eight track recording studio at home, even not a studio. It was a, you know, my bedroom with an eight track player and a mixer and one or two pieces of gear. Uh, and that's how we made like the Gastrodale soul records and things like that. Uh, but before that, I just didn't tech. I didn't have the means to do it. I mean, I, I guess the Faust record is sort of maybe one of the first things that sort of overlap that, but, uh, because I was approaching it by making, you know, the two things sort of worked, although they weren't my tunes, of course. But uh, it probably, yeah, I think it was more that than than that I was turning yeah. from one to the other. It's just the, the 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 possibility of pursuing it became easier. I suppose. Uh, I suppose what I was thinking of is something that has always stuck with me that you told me. I think around the time Eureka came out, which was, um, which was, and I'm paraphrasing from a long time ago, so apologies, mm. but you said something, we were talking about, you know, the, the meticulous kind of writing of that record. And, and you were then saying that the whole, and we were talking about live mm. performance and you were saying the whole idea of playing the same song mm. more than once was anathema to you. Yeah. Yeah, it probably probably was. I mean, I was probably also just getting used to doing interviews at that point. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it was a good quote. It stuck with. Yeah, me. I mean, I. <laughs> it was a good. I start. mean, also think uh, they don't. It doesn't. It for me, the mix and the presentation is so important. Like you know, I mm. mean, in in my obviously, it's not a, a, a realistic point of view, but like. You know, I mean, when I make those things, I'm when I'm finally mixing and putting everything together, I'm sitting there between two speakers and that's the thing I'm making. And I'm hoping people will hear that. And I know that's not, you know, you can't request it of people, but doing the shows, doing those things live, there's just, it's just, it's not the same thing. And I understand people want to hear them, but that's not the thing I want to make. Um. I mean, I did. I did one show in Japan for uh, where we played all of. Uh, oh, actually, we up, we played all of Bad Timing, uh, but we did know that we then we played all of Simple Songs, and that was just absolutely terrifying to me, both because like playing those parts and singing. I mean, I don't even want to sing in front of people, but playing those guitar parts at the same time. Oh God, because the guitar parts on that record are actually pretty hard. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm glad they don't sound that there's way, them. but they're really like finger twigglers. Uh, there's a story, Jim. There's a story that um, Joni Mitchell tells in the Jacko Pistorius uh, documentary about talking of terrifying live gigs. There's a gig that she played where he 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 asked her up to play with him live, and she said he was he was kind of completely kind of he was out there at mm. that point but he talks I, he she uses this phrase 
And I wonder if it's a word that exists solely to Joni or exists in the world of professional musicians. And seeing as we have one here, I thought I would I would ask you. She's talking about how he is refusing to kind of let her come in on this song. And she uses the phrase, and it's such a brilliant phrase. I want it to be a, a real phrase that everyone uses. He says, she says, he cord cheated me. Huh. Like, in terms of like the chords he was playing right. were, you know, kind of were not suited to where she wanted to be in the song. And she, and she, so she was like kind of, so he, he caught cheated me. He caught cheated me. And I was just thinking, wow, what an amazing phrase. And what an amazing thing, you know, huh. kind of to have I've, I've, I've never, to Joni. Yeah, I've never heard that phrase, but I know exactly what she means. What does she mean? Can you explain well, it? Well, especially with like, Joni Mitchell, you know, I mean, her. Yeah. I mean, because she's writing songs with 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 um, not irregular, but different tunings on the guitar. And yeah. because the songs are written in these different tunings and the chords she's choosing, they have a very specific kind of resonance that. Yes. Like playing on a, a regular tuned guitar, you know, with C and D and all that. And that it's not just the chord, it's the color, it's the resonance or the dissonance that exists in these chords. Mm. You know, it's a thing, it's the thing you hear in Fahey. It's the thing you hear in Tony Conrad. It's all, it's, it's all the same yeah. thing. Um, and he's, he's disrupting the, the, the vibration basically, you know, in a way, yeah. not in the hippie sense of the way, word, but like yeah. a certain chord has a certain vibration in, in a Joni Mitchell song, you know? Uh, yeah. And it has to do with that balance of resonance and dissonance. So, yeah. and because Jocko was not a, I'm going to play below you bassist, you know, mm. where, yes. where what you have is the power to reframe everything above you by your note choice. But he's, he's, yeah. he's climbing upstairs into her territory. So, yes. So, and sometimes it was great, so, but maybe sometimes she didn't like yeah. it. Yeah. He caught, he caught wow. her. Thank you so much. It's like. I'm gonna yeah. I, you should. Um, I'm not gonna suggest you do this, but I was gonna. I was immediately. I was gonna suggest that some, like Jim O'Rourke answers your technical music questions. So. <laughs> I'm not gonna employ be, you to do this. It'll be canceled before the first Jim. episode airs. <laughs> um, Jim, it's been an absolute joy and an education to speak oh. to you today. I really, really enjoyed it, and and thank you for just introducing and bringing in such a a marvelous and kind of record that neither of us oh, had wow. heard before you suggested it. So that was, um, that was fantastic. Yeah. It's kind of a cult. It seems um, to have this, become a cult record now. Cause, cause yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, which is remarkable when you think that it was like, you know, obviously one of Warner's major releases in 1981 and, and they signed him as the, you know, the future of fusion, you know, the kind of the bankable star of fusion that all the teens were going to be into. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And then, and then, of course, you know this this incredible, unique, and at times utterly gorgeous album is the result. Uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, everyone, just even I just hope everyone will listen to it. Yeah, and even even if they, you know, they just listen to three mm. views of a secret and John and Mary, I think their life will be enriched and enhanced. Yeah, those are really really remarkable. Absolutely, thank you, thank you so much, thank you. 
Thank you for listening listening to the Mojo Record Show. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we rave about some new records. John, what have you brought in for us this week? Uh, it's um, We normally go for albums, don't we? But uh, this one's a 12-inch or digital EP. It's probably the easiest way to get it is on Bandcamp. And it's called Darkness, Darkness, and it's by Kieran Hebden and William Tyler. Before, before I talk any more about it, I, I, I keep thinking about what you guys were just talking about, about chord cheating. Yeah. I feel like I want to go back to all the records that we're going to talk about later uh, <laughs> in this podcast. And it, it feels like... My, I'm going to have a chord cheating filter on all the music that I listen to <laughs> and sort of try and detect where did, where anyone's going to try and screw. Anyone's doing it. some chord yeah. cheating, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I don't think this uh, this darkness darkness record is uh, that kind of thing, really. Kieran Hebden, you might know better as Fortet, who's gone from making quite esoteric hybrids of jazz, post-rock, folk and electronica to becoming a superstar DJ in the last couple of years, which is quite weird. This guy um, who used to make what I unfortunately termed folktronica, which annoyed him no end 20 years ago, is now DJing in Times Square with Skrillex and Fred again, which is just bizarre, but he manages to pull it off. Anyway, he's teamed up on this record with William Tyler, who's... I was just trying to think, actually, whether William Tyler made any records with Jim O'Rourke producing. I don't think he did. He, he was in Lamb Chop and the Silver Jews for a while back in the day. But but since then, he's he's focused mainly on his own solo records, which take an experimental path of guitar, of, of guitar music, which applies kind of sort of motoric ideas and experimental ideas to roots American folk and country, I guess, is one way of looking at it. Anyway, that's a bit waffly. Darkness Darkness is might be my favourite track of 2023 so far. It's basically, it's an epic remix of a 1969 track by a singer called Gloria Loring. And what Kieran does to it with, Williams' guitar line over the top of it is is maybe what DJ Shadow used to do to um, a, a, an admittedly much wider range of samples on those early uh, 90s singles he did on Moax. It, it has this big sort of widescreen David Axelrod sweep to it with a with a bunch of noise and with a with a great song which actually is a Youngblood's cover at the heart of it all. It's it, it feels like a real sort of crate digger jam, I guess, which is which is good stuff for for what we do here. Let's give it a listen. This is Darkness, Darkness by Kieran Hebden and William Tyler, written by Jesse Colin Young and released on the Psychic Hotline label. John, when you were talking um, about this track to me, you described it as a Mojo Record Club crate diggers catnip. Um, and um, I think, I mean, I, th- I yes, I can hear that. And I absolutely love it up to a point. I love it until the drums come in. I love the kind of 
the grain and the atmosphere and 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 the mix of it and i love all the detail and everything and i love the way in which the, the voices are used the drums feel to me a little too mid 90s breakbeat to me there's kind of like there's a sense in which it kind of throws me out of the present and kind of pushes me back into another era now i know that's a personal um t- a matter of personal taste that there's something kind of almost historic in the way in which those drums sound that kind of doesn't locate it in the in the present as a present sort of track to me and but I definitely went away and sought out that original track and I love the way in which they use the vocal. But my, my favorite thing is just that kind of the degree, the mix of it, the detail in the actual production and that kind of grand expanse of sound that, that they, they create. They do it so well that almost, yeah, I just wanted that to continue. And I felt that when the drums come in, it kind of, it almost in a way, it diminishes it for me. It locates it somewhere else as a kind of a, as just a bit of kind of, you know, sampladelic breakbeat from another era, if you know it's what I mean. It's definitely sampladelic breakbeat from another <laughs> I think that's I, th- I think you've pinpointed the precise point where I thought, God, this is like a DJ Shadow track. Really. Yeah. But but, it, but um it's weird because I went back um I, I was re-listening to introducing um the other day and there's something about the 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 samples, the drum samples, the breaks on introducing that still sound removed from that time there's still a kind of curious sort of out of time oddness to them whereas like you know and whereas like it was very it was very prevalent wasn't it at that time that you'd get the kind of the the old folk track and then you'd get some you know sort of sampled kind of funky drums coming in over the top of it and yeah introducing seem still seems to exist outside of that world to me it seems to have escaped the kind of corrosion of time whereas this very much threw me back into that period yeah, maybe so I, I i i think it's a good point it, maybe it's just some a sound that i haven't heard for a while yeah and I, really, and I really liked it at the time i mean i think the genius of of those dj shadow tracks was that it was a it was a very modern confection yeah but he was extraordinarily good at applying a veneer of vintage yes dust. Yeah. to everything he did. So even though he was drawing from, you know, 50 different records for a yeah. four-minute track or whatever, he the way that he applied them together didn't feel like a very um, uh, uh, mathematical um, construction. No, he, not He at was all. incredibly good at, at creating a veneer of organic authenticity. Yeah. To, with, to what was a, to what was a studious absolutely. studio project. The, the, um, I mean, the, 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 the sorry, the bonus is that there is a second track, "No Services," which is yeah. utterly gorgeous. And if you're if you're like me and you have some irrational dislike of kind of breakbeat drums, then that's perfect because it's just perfectly spaced atmospherics that you can yeah. just lose yourself in without any kind of you know rhythmic track underneath. I would love to hear more of this. I would love to hear a complete William Tyler album produced by Kieran because, you know, if it, if it had the overall immersive kind of slightly kind of hallucinatory feel to it, I would love it. 
You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Record Club. Okay, my record of the week is The Greater Wings. It's the new one by the Buffalo, New York singer-songwriter Julie Byrne. Now, I've been a fan of Julie since 2014, which is terrifyingly almost 10 years. She when she released her first album, Rooms Without Walls and Windows, on Owen Ashworth's Orindal label. Now that record was a kind of a collection of, I suppose, sort of gnomic folk songs sung in a very in a deep yet distant whisper and, and lost in a kind of fog of hiss and reverb, all the stuff that I love. Um, and in the intervening years, Burns albums have they've arguably become more produced, but they still hold a mysterious power to me. This new album is is dedicated to her producer, collaborator, and partner, Eric Lippmann, who who died suddenly in June. 2021 and it's it's an undeniably richer more euphoric album it's it's heavy in modular synths and harps and washes of wordless vocals it's still an album about absence both in kind of the subject matter of the songs but also in terms of the the sound and you sense that the album's kind of warm blanketing production is there for a reason almost to sort of envelop the two vulnerable singer in this protective covering anyway this is the track moonless written by Julie Byrne and released on Ghostly International. quote I threw in Jim's face this morning actually about um about about never wanting to play a song twice mm. and and it was it occurred to me in relation to this to this album and about perceived ideas of songwriterly authenticity if you like yeah. because because when Jim said that to me about Never wanting to, never wanting to play the same song twice. Never wanting to perform songs. Mm. It it made me think a lot about how I valorized, I guess, singer songwriters for their quote unquote authenticity. Yeah, and and how their lived experience fed into their songwriting. Mm. And. And it, it's interesting listening to this record and knowing the terrible, sad backstory to it, and and almost wishing I could hear this record without knowing that. I think I yes. knew I knew the story about Eric Lippmann's passing before I heard the record. Yeah, and so I knew what what the emotional heft behind the songs was. And it's kind of you know I genuinely believe that that these songs would still have a comparable impact, yeah, wi- without knowing that. But yes. it, it's like what we bring to our listening of to records by knowing the stories behind them. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a maybe maybe it's a maybe it's a journalist problem more than a listener's problem. I think. But. I mean, I, I think it's certainly a journalist problem, and I think kind of, and I I certainly would include myself as someone who, you know, would 
that kind of you know that jumps on a backstory because it adds an extra layer to certainly if it's a long form review you've got because you know that you know the irony of of being a a music reviewer is often the hardest thing to write about is the music the hardest thing to find new stuff to say about is the sound of the record itself and so if you've got extra details that you can bring into it if you can kind of if you know that there is a backstory to a particular song or a particular album, you are going to use it. And I totally understand what you mean, that there is a sense in which kind of like, how much of that am I bringing to the listening of the record? And how much am I kind of allowing my critical faculties to be influenced and swayed by the accompanying narrative? And if you if you just heard one of these tracks... Um, on a radio or you know kind of in in a club or a bar without any context how would you respond to it and I know that you know for example I you know I mean kind of I sometimes feel a little sorry for for Owen Ashworth because I know that you know with a with a lot of his artists he kind of like he has kind of given them this kind of like you know world in which they can make their first records and then they're taken by other labels and other producers and kind of and their sound is kind of tidied up and cleaned up and sometimes I do find myself going back to the albums that Owen put out and feeling that they in a way kind of they have a have a quality and a character that I bring to later recordings you know that I kind of impose on them as well so it's kind of like I do you know I really love this album I, I do think it's really beautiful but sometimes I wonder you know what would these songs be like if they were produced in the manner of her first album without this, you know, without, you know, and I think there is, there is a sense in which this album needs to sound like that. It needs to have that kind of sense in which there is a kind of, you know, a a blanketing and a kind of, you know, a a kind of wall around the vulnerability of, you know, of, of Julie's vocals. But at the same time, I think, you know, the album that I will go back to is, is more than the others is rooms with walls and windows, which ironically is the one that is kind of, is the least well-reviewed of her albums, but it's the one that, you know, kind of I find has kind of the, a real beauty at its core. I would, I would agree with that. I find the, um, it's the producer or, or the co-producer is Alex Summers, isn't he? From, mm. who's worked quite a lot with Sigur and he's, He's exceptionally discreet in what he does, but he yeah. makes it he makes it quite pillowy sometimes. Yes. I think I think there's a there's a very, there's an aesthetic journey going on with this record, which is that out of out of terrible pain we reach a point of acceptance and beauty and, yeah. and what he's done with those settings. Yeah. Or what what they've done with those settings is, is try to make that discreetly visceral. Yeah. Um Rather, rather than it just being quite naked in terms yeah. of voice and guitar, and I think that is a you know I, I would say that's also the a, a choice on the on the part of Julie as well, Definitely. and I think that's you know very much a kind of an emotional choice as much as an artistic one, and I think it's it's suitable you know it fits, but at the same time you know you know that there are kind of I don't know what, I'm going to stop there because um, I don't know what I was going to say so. It fits, it works, but there you do think, are there other possibilities? Are there other options? And going back to what you were saying about how we, as reviewers, bring a story to an album, inevitably, you know, a producer does as well. You know, inevitably there there is a kind of, you know, and places a kind of narrative on the songs and a kind of a way in which... Going back to also to what, you know, what we were talking to Jim about with his work on soundtracks, you're, you're, you're bringing in 
these details, these atmospheres to the songs that kind of add an extra layer of meaning. Yeah, and one of the things that I think was so great about that conversation we just had with Jim, talking, going back to your point about sometimes we find it hard professionally to write about how a record sounds, is how brilliant and accessible and granular at the same time he is when he's talking about how a record sounds. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's got an amazing way of articulating what, the, you know, the, the complex madness of that Jaco Pastorius record that yeah. we've just been listening to today. But in a way that is not, in a way that, yeah, absolutely, in a way that is not forbidding or kind of, you know, intellectual at all, you suddenly feel that you understand that record in maybe a way that you didn't beforehand. Okay, you have been listening to Jim O'Rourke, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. We hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. Due to the wide dynamic levels, please adjust your volume accordingly.